We're going to be looking at the, that text that Hans did a great job sharing last Sunday, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. And let me read those verses for you at this time. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. Man, we're about done with this book of 2 Peter. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If you were here last Sunday, you heard Hans develop the three ways the coming uh, day of the Lord impacts your life as a believer. And they're all right there in that text in those three verses. First of all, we're to live like Christ by living a holy and godly life. That's verse 11. I mean, it kind of stands out at you, doesn't it? In verse 12, we're supposed to be looking for Christ. And believe me, we need to be living in that way, looking for the Lord Jesus Christ at any moment to take us out of here. That's verse 12. And then verse 13, you need to be longing for home. I'm going to be talking about that, especially the last point this morning, longing for home. And then Hans drove that message home to hearts and and minds by asking this question, is this what you long for? You know, we need to stop and answer that. Is this really what I long for? Is this what I live for and so forth? How attached are you to this perishing world? And by the way, you can't miss Peter's um, application of his teaching that begins in verse 11 and runs all the way through uh, this chapter, chapter 3. But this morning we're going to review verses 11 through 13 by looking at them from a different perspective. And hopefully by doing so, we will be more compelled to live like Christ to uh, look for Christ and to uh, long for being home. And we're going to look at the day of God, the promise of God, and the righteousness of God. That's how we're going to look at these verses. The day of God, so you got the big outline already. The day of God, the promise of God, and the righteousness of God that Peter talks about and develops in verses 11 through 13. Let's begin then with the day of God. The day of God. Verses 11 and 12 again, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? The day of God. We start with an important distinction here in our text that we need to look at. An important distinction. And that's between the day of the Lord and the day of God. That's a distinction you need to make in your mind here in the scripture. The day of the Lord. In verse 10, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I brought a message over that in chapter 10 back on Sunday, March 4th. And we examine where the prophets use that term often, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament as well as how it's used in the New Testament. And it's a term that focuses on divine judgment. So you know when you come across that term, the day of the Lord that those prophets used in the Old Testament, it's an emphasis on divine judgment. It's a term when used by Peter here in chapter 3 that describes two major time periods. You remember that? Back March 4th, or in your study of Scripture? 
it it defines two major time periods. That first of the day of the Lord is the Lord takes you and me out of here at the rapture, which I wish could happen right now, and all true believers will be home with Him, and instantly the seven-year tribulation period begins when God judges the world of earth dwellers and pours out His wrath out upon earth dwellers. And by the way, John the Apostle, he described that time period in Revelation 4 through 19. And that's the first time period that's uh, focused on here. And then there's a second part or time period that captures God's outpoured wrath when the Lord has reigned for 1,000 years here upon the earth. And then the devil is released because he's been in, uh, uh, in, a, uh, in prison for that thousand years. And he goes out and he gathers up the people like the sands of the seashore, it says. And they have given feigned obedience to the Lord. But now they march up to Jerusalem with an intent of overthrowing King Jesus. And of course, that wrath of God, when the fire of God comes down upon them and destroys them instantly... And immediately after, of course, Satan is cast into the bottom, or the lake of fire, I'm sorry, at that time. And there his minions of following angels as well. And then God has what we call the great white throne judgment, where his wrath once again falls upon all unsaved mankind since the days of Adam. And they're all found guilty that stand before him. And he casts them into the lake of fire, a place a torment where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And somewhere around that time period, Peter's prophecy will also be fulfilled when he says, when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. In fact, over in Revelation 20, I think it's verse 11 or verse 15, he says, And heaven and earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. Perhaps that's when this event takes place here. Well, I shared a helpful quote from John MacArthur's study Bible. And if you have that study Bible, you have that quote. He says, The day of the Lord is a technical term pointing to the special intervention of God in human history for judgment. It ultimately refers to the future time of judgment whereby God judges the wicked on the earth and ends this world system in its present form. He continues, The Old Testament prophets saw the final day of the Lord as unequal darkness and damnation, a day when the Lord would act in a climactic way to vindicate His name, destroy His enemies, reveal His glory, establish His kingdom, and destroy the world. And then he, he concludes this quote with these words. It occurs at the time of the tribulation on earth and again 1,000 years later at the end of the millennial kingdom before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Now that's the day of the Lord that you run across in scripture and you saw it here in verse 10 of chapter 3. But now we make a distinction with the day of God in your outline. The day of God. Verse 12 Peter writes, looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God. That word hasting, I think it means, it it can also be translated eagerly looking for, with eagerness looking for it. Peter continues by stating that this coming day of God will arrive. Why? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And I believe there that Peter's talking about the fact that when God destroys this present heavens and earth, then 
will begin the day of God. And I want to talk about that just a little bit. When the day of God begins, oh, blessed be his name, Satan and sin and evil and all that has been associated with him will forever be gone. Gone forever. And God will be all in all and only righteousness will dwell in God's universe. Now let's explore that a little bit. In your outline, number two, the day of God and the manifestation of his glory. The day of God, making that distinction between the day of the Lord and the day of God, the day of God and the manifestation of his glory. You know, we are to pray for God's kingdom to what? Come, right? You know the Lord's prayer. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. We pray about his kingdom to come. In fact, we're to address that prayer to who? God the Father. Our Father, you know it. Our Father, who are in heaven. And then he goes on, keep that in mind now as you think about Peter's words, the day of God here in our text. We then pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How's it done in heaven? Perfectly. Absolute perfection in heaven there. When will this will be done in perfect righteousness here upon the earth? During the day of God. The day of God is when that will take place. When the day of God comes, not before. Well, let's look at the preview leading up to the display of God's glory. You need to turn me down just a little bit. There's a little bit of ring there. The preview leading up to the display of God's glory. Remember now, this is a preview of God's glory. He will manifest his glory during those seven years of tribulation, won't he? When he pours out his wrath upon this sin-cursed world of earth dwellers who spurn his grace and blaspheme his name, choosing not to turn to Christ and obey the gospel of God. This is recorded for us by the Apostle John's mention in Revelation 4 through 19 when he will display that glory by the very wrath and judgment that he pours out upon the earth dwellers and this world. But secondly, God will also manifest his glory by redeeming a remnant of Jews during that period of time. There will be a remnant of Jews, and they're going to get saved, and I believe it's in Isaiah 66. It might be 65. It says that a nation is born in a day, and that's the fulfillment of that, when he redeems a remnant of Jews who will make up the new nation of Israel, who will go into the millennial reign when Christ establishes his kingdom here upon the earth. Now, that's not a very popular teaching today. As so much of the church has gotten into what we call restoration or replacement theology, I should call it, where they teach that, no, no, the church now takes over those Old Testament promises to the Jew. I would, if, if, you, if you believe that, if that's where you are, I would challenge you to do a thorough study of Zechariah 12 through 14. Do a thorough study of Zechariah 12 through 14 and figure out how can this possibly be fulfilled. It certainly can't be spiritualized. So look at that. But that will be another way that he brings glory to his name when he fulfills those promises and he redeems a remnant of Jews, like those 144,000 Jews, for example, and they will make up the new nation of Israel that will go into the millennial reign of Christ. Number three, God's going to manifest his glory by setting his son upon his throne in Jerusalem, literally, not from heaven. Folks, he's coming back to reign. God promised that. He has a a promise to fulfill, and believe me, he's going to do it, thus fulfilling all those Old Testament 
prophecies where he expressly decreed he would do so. For example, Psalm 2, but it's all over the Old Testament. Number four, God will manifest his glory by judging Satan and his minion of fallen angels at the end of Christ's thousand year reign when he casts Satan and those angels into the lake of fire where they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. I love Revelation 20.10. Boy, I love it. Where he declares he's going to do that. What a day that's going to be. And you and I, the redeemed, are going to be there to see that and shout and Praise God when it happens. Number five, God's going to manifest His glory by causing every knee, your knee, my knee, to bow and tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. That will happen at the great white throne judgment. They will appear before Him. There will be no question at that time in their mind and their heart who this is that's on that throne. And they will bow their knee. Their tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. But all those unsaved people that will be at that throne will be found guilty because they've turned down the offer of grace that was provided in Jesus Christ at the cross. And they will be cast into the lake of fire. And God will be glorified as His Word stands firm and true. And six, God will manifest his glory by completely destroying this present heavens and earth. Amazing, isn't it? Exactly as Peter says here, the 24 elders in Revelation 4, they said, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. There it is. You created all things. By the way, that's all the way from Genesis 1 through your Bible, isn't it? It's all over the place in the Old New Testament. You created all things, they said, and they worship Him. And for because of your will, they existed and were created. It is, it is His world, and He alone created it, and He alone will destroy it. Amen? Amen. All of this is a preview leading up to what we call the day of God's glory. So let's look at that now. The day of God's glory. I have some passages of scripture I want you to just follow along as I read about the day of God's glory. Romans eleven, thirty-three through thirty-six. Romans eleven, thirty-three through thirty-six. Paul just he just bursts forth in praise. Oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And then he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Believe me, that will be fulfilled in the day of God. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. Paul writes, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. We'll celebrate that, won't we, next week. After that, those who are Christ at His coming, listen, then comes the end. Get that? Then comes the end. When He has handed over the kingdom to the God and Father. 
That's what we're talking about, the day of God's glory. He hands it over, the kingdom to God, then Father, that's the Lord Jesus does that. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That means God the Father has put all things under the subjection to his son's feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Listen to these last words. So that God may be all in all. That's the day of God that he's talking about here in Second Peter 3 verse 12. That description is right there. And then one more, Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Revelation 21, 1 through 6. I think, Hans, you even shared some of this last week as well. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, oh my. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, I love it, It is done. It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Dear ones, that's what's called the day of God. In that new heaven and that new earth. Well, we move now to the promise of God. We've looked at the day of God. We build on that now, the promise of God. God's promise that will directly affect every unsaved person. If you're here this morning, we're glad you're here, of course. And if you're here unsaved, I hope that God will just bless your heart by speaking to you and that you will not remain an unsaved person because of this promise. So this is the promise of God that will affect every unsaved person. Back in verse 9, God tells us about a promise that he made that he's going to fulfill. In verse 9, he said, the Lord is not slow about his promise. There it is. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What was that promise that he made? You can't miss it. Peter mentions it three different times in this last chapter. Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Every unsaved person is an ungodly man. You might have your righteousness, but you don't possess the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness. Verse 10, Second time, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. But he's not done. Look at verse 12 for the third time he emphasizes what that promise is where Peter describes the end of this planet 
that God is going to destroy with fire. He says, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That promise of God directly affects every single unsaved person. That's a promise that affects every person in this world. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not redeemed, you're not saved, it affects you, believe me. The Apostle Paul shows the awful impact that has on every unsaved person when he describes them with these words. Here's his description. They are separate from Christ, listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. You wonder what's wrong with the world? All these struggles you see in the world going on, they have no hope. And they're without God in the world. He also tells us just how horrible their situation in this life is when he writes, they're dead in their trespasses and sins and are enslaved to and under the control of Satan and his minion of fallen angels called demons. That's their condition, whether they know it or not. They keep the un- these demons, of, they keep the unsaved person blind and continually searching and utterly lost and enslaved. That's the world around you of unsaved people. This is a, a, very, a very troubled world. It's a wicked, evil world, as you know. No wonder so many teens, for example, have turned to drugs, opioids, and they're not, they're not the only ones, are they? And they turn to suicide. No wonder people give themselves over to alcohol and to all kinds of sexual perversion. I mean, they're searching, longing for something that will fill this void and emptiness in them. What do they have to live for and to look forward to? By the way, it gets worse, far worse. Because God says, after he fulfills this promise of destroying the pleasant heavens and the present heavens of the earth, that they're going to stand before him at the great white throne judgment, and they'll be found guilty, and they'll be cast into that lake and fire where they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not much to live for, is there? When you think about that, and that's what the scripture says, and that's why Jesus came, is to keep you and me or get you and me out of hell. As I said in your outline, this is God's promise that will directly affect every unsaved person. But it doesn't have to. Oh dear one, if you're here and maybe this is your first time at church for a while, or maybe you're a very religious person, you come all the time, but you, you say, boy, there's still an emptiness in me. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I don't even know what that means. And I pray that before this service is over, that you'll ask Jesus to save you. Just turn yourself over to him and say, I'm a sinner that deserves hell. I don't want to go there. Please, I want you to forgive me and come into my heart and save me. And he will, because that's how every one of us are saved, God saved. That's the wonderful gift of God through his son. That's why he came. We sing a lot about the triumphal entry. He came to go to that cross to save you. Then let him save you. Let him save you. But secondly, Very, very good news. Number two, God's promise that will directly affect every saved person. Oh, if you're saved, this promise is going to affect you. And praise God that it will. Number A there, Abraham knew and embraced this promise. Abraham knew it. Peter writes in verse 13, but according to his promise, there it is a second time, his promise, but this is different than the one in verse 9. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In a world presently controlled by Satan, the God of this world, who has committed himself to absolutely hate you with a venom as one of God's redeemed children. In a world where you have Christ living in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, yet you continually have to fight and resist your own sinful nature day in and day out. Plus you have to live the best you can in a world that's still under God's curse. How precious is this promise of God to you and me? 
Oh, dear ones. And I think the older you get and the more you're in the scriptures, the more precious it becomes. And when you're facing things that don't change in your life and you're getting progressively worse and worse, boy, how precious this becomes to you and to me. It's amazing what we're told about Abraham about 4,500 years from today and what he knew. You're reading your New Testament through the book of Hebrews and suddenly you come across these words. By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise. That's the promised land over there of Israel. As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Listen to this, listen to this. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Somehow, God gave him a picture that he gave to the Apostle John much, much years later about the new Jerusalem. And boy, did that affect this guy's life, according to Hebrews. And it ought to affect your and my life as well. And that's what Peter is saying. The day of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the earth. Wow. Jesus comforts you with that promise. Oh, oh my. Multitudes upon multitudes of people over the past 2,000 years have been comforted by Jesus' promise that's been brought to many a troubled and hurting heart. You know those verses so well, John 14, 1 through 6. Jesus' promise, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. He always tells the truth, doesn't he? For I go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Appreciate Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, Thomas, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no man comes through the Father except through me. And you think about that. In a world that uh, we saw that one promise of God that he's going to destroy this world and those people that are unsaved have turned down that offer, grace offered freely in his son, that they must stand at the great white throne judgment and he'll say they'll be guilty, although they'll confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God and then he'll have to cast them into that lake of fire. But he says, listen, I tell you now, I am the way and the world is searching wanting to find something that satisfies. And when you see a world that's so empty and going to be destroyed by God, he says, I am the way, I am the truth. Boy, millions of pilots answering, asking that question. What is truth? You're not going to find it on television, are you? You're not going to find it in the political arena. And sadly, you're not going to find it in a lot of churches. What's truth? And so they're out there floundering around and slaved by the devil, trying to set the opioids and drugs and all the other things, trying to fill that, trying to search for truth. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Not a religion. You only come to the Father through Jesus Christ. John portrays for you this promise. John portrays for you this promise. We've already read those wonderful verses of Revelation 21 about the new Jerusalem and God's dwelling in our midst. But let me add to them those precious verses out of chapter 22. And may I remind you, I love what was on God's heart. The last thing he wanted to share as he closed the writing of the scriptures, and that is I want to talk about your heavenly home. I want to talk about the day of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, your home. 
Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the streets. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. And listen to this, listen to this, and they will see His face. Oh, to finally be home and to see the face of God, the face of your Savior and Lord and God. And His name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they, listen, and they will reign forever. What a contrast to the unsaved. They'll be cast into the lake of fire and be tormented day and night forever and ever there. But we who are redeemed will reign forever. Not just get home. Reign forever. Where are my amens? You guys need to be far more Pentecostal than you are, I'll tell you. Wow. My. How many folks, we're finally going to be home. Finally going to be home. Paradise will be regained. This is God's promise that's going to directly affect every saved person. In 1 Peter, the apostle describes you and me as being aliens and strangers in this present world. That's what we are right now. And as such, our hearts cry out with the Apostle Paul, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. That's what you preached about last Sunday. Eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of this humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Oh, bring it on, Lord. Bring it on. That's what we desire. And we come now to the third one, the righteousness of God. We've looked at the day of God, the promise of God, and now the righteousness of God. Verse 13 again. But according to His promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We need a biblical definition of righteousness. That will help us here. A biblical definition of righteousness. The word in both the Hebrew and the Greek embraces our English words, right, righteous, righteousness, as well as the words just and justice. They're all caught in the Hebrew and Greek words for that. I'm going to use a definition by Wayne Grudem, I think is very good here, that will help us. He says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Let me state that again for you. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance to what is right, and is himself the standard of what is right. Moses said to God in Deuteronomy 32.4, he said, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. That's that word righteous, by the way. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Boy, what a capture hold of the character of God there about his righteousness. So what is right? What is right? Whatever conforms to God's moral character is right. God is the final standard of righteousness. This is so important right now, so I want you to get this. God is the final standard of what is righteous. righteous. The unsaved person believes, and your culture out here believes, and the world believes this, that they have the right to determine what is right and what's wrong, right? Sure. They say, hey, we, we have the right... 
here's the situation. As a Christian, you and I know we're not given that choice. Get that? As a Christian, you're not given that choice. God, who is the absolute standard of right, decrees to us and to the unsaved what is right and what is wrong. And where's it found? In his written revelation. And so we run across people and say, hey, you know, it's a relative thing about you think what this is right. No, no, it's not what I think is right and what you think. It's what he says is right and wrong. That becomes a standard by which all mankind will be judged. Number two, the reason for Peter's unusual focal point. <laughs> the reason for Peter's unusual focal point. If you're observant and you know the scriptures, you get into Second Peter and something catches your attention here. Peter puts at least a thousand and a seven years behind him and his readers without even mentioning them. I mean, he just flies over the whole top of the tribulation and the thousand year reign of Christ. He, he just flies over the whole top there, lands way beyond that. He says virtually nothing about the coming seven years, the worldwide tribulation or these thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth that will follow those seven terrible years. Only in a general way does he even allude to the, that period of time, that thousand seven years. When he writes and says, the mockers ask the question, where's the promise of his coming? That's it. Where's the promise of the coming? So you know that he's going to come back, and we believe he's going to come back in the air, and we're going to be taken out here, and then seven years later he's going to come back to the earth again. But he just kind of, he just mentions it and flies right over the, the whole thousand seven years. Now, why does he deliberately skip over those years? That's what should have captured your attention. I know it did mine. I kept thinking, I need an answer to this. The answer is in the last part of verse 13. It's in the last part of verse 13. Peter says, we're looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. In which righteousness dwells. Kata oiko is the word there. Kata is a preposition that primarily means down. It's attached as a prefix to the word oikos, which means house. In other words, to settle down and be at home. Put it that way. Just settle down and be at home. You see, absolute righteousness will not be completely settled down even though Christ will be here reigning for a thousand years, even though Satan is bound in that bottomless pit, it will not be a time of absolute righteousness. In fact, as I mentioned before, the Bible says uh, all these people that move in in physical bodies into that millennial reign of Christ, and they live long, long lives, and they have lots and lots of children, and many of them will give only feigned obedience to Christ because he will rule with a rod of iron. They don't want to be cut off and so they will obey him but it's only feigned obedience. They are not righteous. They are not redeemed and so much so do we know that because when Satan is released he goes out and it says he gathers them up like the sand on the seashore. And what do they do? In rebellion they go up against Jerusalem to overthrow King Jesus. No, that won't be a time of absolute righteousness. It won't be settled down dwelling permanently on the earth at that time. And then, of course, the great white throne judgment. You've got all the sinful, rebellious people who have turned down the offer of salvation in Christ, and they will stand before him as guilty sinners, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. And then he will destroy somewhere in that period of time the heavens and the earth, and he will create the new heavens and the earth, or recreate whichever it's going to be. And then righteousness will dwell permanently upon the earth. What a time. That brings us to our last point, a glorious universe where absolute righteousness dwells. My, a glorious universe where absolute righteousness dwells. 
After the great white throne judgment, Satan and every angel that chose to follow him and every unsaved, unrighteous individual that has ever been born will have been judged and they'll be removed out of God's kingdom forever. Thy kingdom come, we pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven perfectly. There will no longer be any more unrighteousness, dear ones. None! Ever! It is not until then that God creates the new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness permanently dwells. You know, all you and I have ever known, even as saved people in the very best of times, is a life lived in a fallen, sinful world, isn't it? In a fallen, sinful body as well. Presently, this world's under Satan's control. Unrighteousness foments like yeast in dough in this world, and even worse, more and more now. And Peter wants us to try to imagine what it's going to be like when we all are ever going to, all we're ever going to know is absolute righteousness. (laughs) Nothing but absolute righteousness. The Apostle Paul said it so well, it staggers my mind. He wrote, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. We sing about Him loving us. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you love Him? For to us, oh, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. And when God fulfills this promise, Peter records for us here in 2 Peter 3.13, but according to His promise, We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Dear ones, you and I will finally be home. (laughs) Finally be home. When I was a teenager, that goes back a ways. (laughs) I heard a song. When I heard that song, I said, you know, it's sort of like, that's going to be my song. I want that to be my song. You know, when you get older, you lose quality in your voice, so you've got to forgive me for that. But when I was working on this message, for some, you know, I looked for a closing song. I just thought, you know, Lord, I'm getting closer to the finish line as well. And it certainly fits in with Second Peter 3, 11 through 13. And I thought, I'll sing it. They can close their ears. I'll sing it to you. But listen to the words. Even though I may not have the quality of my voice, listen to the words. They are so rich and so wonderful. And they tie right in with that verse. My heart can sing when I pause to remember A heartache here is but a stepping stone Along the trail that's winding always upwards This troubled world is not my final home But until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, with joy I'll carry on. Until that day, my eyes behold the city. Until that day, God calls me home. The things of earth will dim and lose their value 
if we recall they're borrowed for a while and things of earth that cause this heart to tremble remembered there will only bring a smile but until then my heart will go on singing until then with joy I'll carry on until the day my eyes behold the city until that day God calls me home this weary world with all its toil and struggles may take its toll of misery and strife the soul of man it's like a waiting falcon when it's released it's destined for the skies but until then my heart will go on singing until then with joy I'll carry on until that day these eyes behold my Savior until that day God calls me home Heavenly Father finally home finally home Thank you for this promise of 2 Peter 3.13. And Lord, until then, let his heart go on singing. I think of those dear ones that know about a troubled world. They know about a body that's failing them. They know about sickness. They know about cancer and other diseases that are taking them down. But oh, until then, may they go on singing until their eyes behold the city, until their eyes behold their Savior, until the day they're finally home. Thank you for this promise. In Jesus, your name, amen.